Hello, this is Andy Brewer with the Healthcare Insights Podcast from Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine. This is episode 26, and I have with me today Sarah Howell Miller. She is a prioress of the Foundry House. I had to look that up, by the way. I was like, what yeah, is that? that um, among many other things, she's a Methodist pastor. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, singer, songwriter, mm-hmm. all kinds of things. And, and I happen to know Sarah through uh, Ultimate Frisbee Circles, and also her father happened to be my pastor when I was a young lad in, yeah. in uh, was at Meisenheimer, North Carolina, yep. Wesley Chapel Church, so when I was a, uh, uh, an usher, <laughs> so I could sneak out during the sermons and eat all the <laughs> sweet pickles in the I won't tell him you were skipping a sermon. Well, I got caught one time and I had to do acolyte duty. So <laughs> oh, there you go. I think it was well known. But yeah. uh, well, welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having Thank me. You. So tell me about um, what the Prioris does and, <laughs> and, and what the Foundry House is all about. Yeah. So um, the Foundry House is an intentional Christian community for young adults on the campus of Crossmore School and Children's Home. And so um, right now we have six residents. Most of them are Wake Forest Divinity students, but we also have a few young professionals who live there. And um, they um, have regular prayer practices and weekly meals. And um, theoretically, we're not super consistent with it, but theoretically service on the farm at Crossnor and other places in the community. So, mm-hmm. so um, growing food. And- some of that, yeah. Yeah. So it's um, kind of an experiment that we've been working on for the last year and a half. And um, yeah. Well, when you say intentional, what, what do you mean by that? So I kind of joke that intentional community is people living together on purpose um, instead of just kind of ending up with a roommate, it's people who decide that living in close proximity to other people is important and um, and having kind of these shared rhythms and practices are, are formative in certain ways that, and they kind of make you be in proximity with people who are different from you or and um, that creates conflict, but that's a, you know, place to grow. And uh, so, and it's, it is an intentional Christian community, so our prayer practices are very broadly Christian, but... Um, there are a lot of different kinds of intentional community in different places, but they kind of draw on Christian monasteries and history um, to, you know, bring some of those um, some of those resources into everyday life, mm-hmm. basically. Now, growing up in the around in and around the church with your father being a pastor, did, was it a foregone conclusion you were going <laughs> to find the clergy, or, or is that something that came to you later, or just was it natural? Um, it was kind of a. I mean, I'm a lot like my dad, and I. I was, you know, you hear about like the rebel preacher's kid. That wasn't me. I was like, I loved church. I was the goody two shoes and um, studied religion in college. And um, I'm not sure that I had fully embraced or still have totally fully embraced the uh, uh, being clergy sometimes. I'm still kind of figuring out what that needs to look like for me. But Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, it was sort of. You can look back on my life and see how I got there pretty easily. But, um, yeah, trying to figure out how that needs to express for myself these days. Well, how do you find that? I mean, you're obviously, I would say, a millennial. um, An elder millennial. An elder millennial. (laughs) I mean, I'm firmly Gen X, so, um, you know, we're kind of left out of the conversation. (laughs) But um, I just wanted to kind of figure out, like, what do you see trends-wise or what's the vibe like? with the age group that seems to, according to popular press, have, have been more uh, secular, less sacred, um, maybe signing up for <clears throat> uh, 
ideology, politics, other things other than religion? What, what, what's your take on that? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways to look at it. Some of what I see is, um, I mean, there are a lot, there are folks my age that are really engaged in religion and in Christianity or whatever, whatever the tradition might be. But broadly, um, I think a lot of times, um, like my parents' generation and older see the younger people not coming to church as much anymore and think that they don't care about the same things that mattered to them. And I don't really think that's true. I think it just expresses really differently in different generations. And I think a lot of it, you know, I talk to a lot of people around my age who, um, for whom it's, it's not so much that they aren't interested in faith or spirituality. It's that they're suspicious of these institutions and they've seen a lot of the institutions of religion as exclusive and judgmental and, um, haven't had different kinds of experiences with faith. Um, so I feel like a lot of my job, even when I'm like at trivia at a bar with my friends, is to kind of introduce a different possibility for mm-hmm. what it can be like to engage with a religious tradition or a faith tradition. So a different form of e- evangelizing, perhaps. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I mean, evangelizing is, is some some people see that as a negative connotation, but I'm, I'm an evangelist for many things. You sure, know, sure. Ultimate Frisbee being one of them. Right. <laughs> eating healthy and exercise, yeah, all yeah. that stuff. But uh, um, yeah, well, that uh, so the way I kind of experienced it myself was just when I'd go to the traditional service at any number of churches within stone's throw of here is just you know the age group was older and more traditional and then they would have the alternative service where it was a lot of guitars and singing and you know trying to attract but it was a lot younger audience and there was this whole dearth of uh you know people missing the from my age group and mm-hmm. and you know probably the millennial demographic as well so i i, I see what you're saying about like maybe skeptical of or cynical of the institutions itself mm-hmm. and not finding that as a place of uh, that they want to belong to, yeah. you know, uh, a, as a community, but, but to holding on to the same values uh, and manifesting them some, some way else. Now uh, you also are, vol- you're a volunteer at Twin City Harm Reduction Collective, mm-hmm. which I understand. I think a lot of people uh, misunderstand what, what all that is. Can you, I'll talk about Twin City Harm Reduction Collective and also what harm reduction um, as a methodology and a, and, a, and a, what would you say, a philosophy yeah. is. Sure. So um, I'll do like the short version. The The real expert is my husband, Colin, who uh, he's the one that taught me a lot of this. Um, and he works for Twin City Harm Reduction Collective. And um, it is a... Um, syringe exchange and harm reduction outfit that operates out of Green Street United Methodist Church, which um, I'm actually on staff there now, so Mm -hmm. I get to interact with them in a different way, which is pretty fun. And um, it is a needle exchange, so they um, hand out clean needles and um, drug-using supplies, as well as naloxone, the overdose reversal drug, and um, offer... Um, training to people who use drugs on how to stay safe and avoid um, contracting disease or spreading disease. Um, And they also work, they've been working with the health department to provide vaccinations and STI testing and um, linkage to treatment for hep C and HIV, as well as treatment for substance use disorder if people choose to take that route. So um, it's a pretty comprehensive operation for being uh, pretty small. But um, 
And um, harm reduction in general, um, I always use the National Harm Reduction Coalition has a sort of a two-tier definition of what harm reduction is. And they talk about harm reduction, lowercase h, lowercase r, as being a set of practical strategies for reducing harms associated with drug use. So that's, you know, offering clean supplies, naloxone, overdose reversal, um, treatment for infectious diseases, that kind of stuff. Um, But then also harm reduction, capital H, capital R, is a social justice movement for the rights of people who use drugs, um, acknowledging that there's a a lot in the current state of um, drug policy that is deeply racialized and unjust and um, that we have a lot of assumptions about drugs and the people who use them that um, are not right or fair or um, are promoting public health. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's sort of harm reduction in a nutshell. And um, I've gotten involved with a national faith and harm reduction working group that is um, trying to develop some resources for faith communities to mm-hmm. to engage in harm reduction practices and support the philosophy, which has been, it's been very interesting because it's mm-hmm. um, uh, a lot of times, not, and not just faith communities, but sometimes people who aren't familiar with harm reduction react very negatively when they first hear about giving needles to, to drug users. And, and I reacted pretty negatively when I first learned about the practice and the and the principles, but the more that I got involved and that I got to know the impact that it was having on people, the more I've come to really embrace it and become an evangelist for, for yeah. harm reduction. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I can see how a lot of people think that's enabling. Sure. And, and um, one of my guests, who's been the only return guest I've had so far, um, Thomas Reed, who does these seminars of effective communication, talks about separating the intent from the behavior. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's some of that in there. If we can look at what is your intention with using, is it because you want to feel better, um, you want to escape mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, so bringing the faith piece in that. Well, first of all, the harm reduction just says, we don't want you to hurt yourself more than you already are. So sure. let's let's not focus on the behavior, but... We're going to give you tools for that behavior that will make it less of harmful. So, right. so that's kind of the essence of that part of it. But the faith part intrigues me because I think what we find, especially with this, the opioid crisis has really, you know, exacerbated through, you know, not just um, traditionally uh What's the words to use traditionally underrepresented, um, however you want to put that. But now it becomes a problem for everybody. Mm -hmm. Like most Mm -hmm. of us know someone who has suffered from opioid uh, use disorder or Mm -hmm. any number of substances that that, uh, you know, from all levels of economic um, background, all levels of skin color, mm-hmm. sexual orientation, all that stuff. So the faith part really intrigues me because I think <clears throat> that at the core is <clears throat> one of the pieces that's missing. And, you know, I've said it probably every episode that the opposite of addiction is social connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the faith part can bring in that. So is that what you're experiencing? I mean, is that some of what's behind? Yeah, that's a lot of it. And, um, um. Yeah. Oh man, where to even start? Well, and it, I think it's been. <laughs> it's we don't been, have to cut the commercial, <laughs> so take your time. It's been interesting for me um, to look at kind of how um, drug use is is moralized 
both in faith contexts and in, in non-faith contexts, but then it's, it's made me take a harder look at, um, how in the faith community we moralize health more broadly and moralize bodies in ways that are problematic, that are ableist, that um, are discriminatory without even realizing it. And so for me, it's um, looking at harm reduction from a faith perspective has been um, really illuminating in a lot of different areas for me and how I think about health and faith um, broadly. But I'm, I, you know, I, I have done a lot of um, work around my own stigma against people who use drugs because I've, you know, I'm, I like didn't drink in high school and haven't used illicit drugs. And that's not just not been a part of my life. And I've been, I carried a lot of judgment toward people who did use drugs for a long time and um, have had to really examine where those come from, um, what validity, if any, do they hold often very little. <laughs> um, and realizing too that it's, um, when you start to get to know people who are in situations that you may be judged a certain way, um, the reality of their lives is very different from what I assumed. Um, both in terms of some of what I assumed was harmful behavior, maybe it, it, maybe the behavior itself isn't what was harmful. Maybe it was how society treated that person or what access they did or didn't have to resources. Um, and, you know, even from sort of a theological perspective, there's a lot of, um, rhetoric and Christianity around, um, you know, purity and how we care for our bodies. And whereas I think some of that has been helpful for some groups of people, it has, I, I think it's, it's made it easy to discriminate against people whose behavior doesn't align with, you know, a particular view of, you know, what a good Christian should be doing to care for their bodies or whatever. Um, so, um, I'm not sure if I completely answered the question, but just to say it's been really um, eye-opening for me to try to apply a harm reduction lens um, in a lot of different areas, but mm -hmm. particularly around around drug use. Well, I think just sitting here listening to that, you know, I'm thinking about what my biases are towards that and what my judgments are mm -hmm. against or towards people who use and, and you know, I'm thinking more, uh, you know, people with severe mm -hmm. addictions, I guess, and that, um, you know, I've off I've, I've listened to who's it, Jonathan Hari and mm -hmm. other people who talk about it's not necessarily the matter itself. It's the life around the user mm -hmm. who doesn't feel like they're connected to anything or, or, or lacks, lacks the, uh, you know, the playground, you know, the rats in the cage will do yeah. coke all day. Because there's no other stimulation, right. you know. But you put stimulation in the cage, and all of a sudden they can they can forget the the, the substance there. So, so is there some of that that you see? I mean, is there lack of meaning and purpose and stimulation that is positive and healthy stimulation versus just because yeah. I mean that's just my bias. He's talking. I mean, I'm like, yeah, it's you know, just stop using and go, you know, go to the Y and work out, and mm. you'll feel better. You know, it's it's sure. easy to prescribe those things when that's our experience and that's right. how we would or you know how I would address it. But it's it's being unfair. I know and, and just yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's a lot there, and um, one thing you kind of touched on that I've thought a lot about is that we often we 
think of addiction in these very extreme terms of either someone is in very chaotic drug use and it's you know dominating and ruining their lives or they're if they have a problem with drugs at all the other option is to be completely abstinent and that's like the positive good thing but there's actually a huge spectrum of substance use and um i really think that the the biggest the the most destructive thing I see in the lives of people I know who use drugs is is that isolation and disconnection. And um, a lot of that is is really fueled by shame and often by trauma, the rates of, of trauma and PTSD among um, people with substance use disorder are much higher than the general population. And, you know, if you're if, if using drugs has been your only known coping mechanism, uh, sometimes from a young age, and you don't have... Um, obvious or accessible alternatives, you know, it's, we're, we're asking a lot of people to make a huge step, especially if we're expecting them to become completely abstinent from a substance when, you know, harm reduction basically claims that there are, there are a lot of stages along the way where someone could make a positive change. Um, that's kind of the slogan of some harm reduction outfits is any positive change, mm-hmm. even if that's going from injecting heroin to snorting it. Well, that's a little bit safer in some ways. And so, um, there, it, it's sort of acknowledging that there are ways in which people who use drugs have agency and have um, choices. They just need to be presented with them and, and given support mm-hmm. to to make those choices for themselves. Um, I forget the rest of your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if it was a question. Others just. Uh, um, but yeah, but the isolation piece is something that I see because there's such there's so much stigma, and even. You know, even I've even observed in communities that talk openly about stigma and about drug use, it's still so the shame is still so heavy that it can be hard even in those circles for people to really be open about what's going on or ask for help when they need it. Um, because like it's just been so heavy with with the way society has viewed drug use. Um, and when it comes to, you know, we're in the middle of an overdose crisis. And to me, it's. You know, we have this we have this drug naloxone that reverses an overdose. If someone is um, using with another person who has naloxone, even if they overdose, there's they don't have to die. Mm-hmm. Um, overdose deaths are preventable. The thing that kills people is not just the overdose itself, but it's if they're using alone, and often they are because of shame or fear or or because they don't have anybody to mm-hmm. support and care for them. And so um, that to me that rebuilding of relationship um is really important um for people who are who are struggling in that way yeah i mean i think i think and that's again faith comes in and in just the word community i think we've gotten so uh so divided with you know not only electronic devices so we're all socializing but we're alone socializing and and um you know there's a lot of efforts to bring back things into the community, you know, like the elimination of food deserts mm-hmm. and affordable housing mm-hmm. and, um, you know, obesity prevention. And there's a lot of things, especially right here at the hospital, a lot of things are centered here that are reaching out tentacles into the community mm-hmm. to try to address some of these things. And, and one of the things you said about, you know, we, we immediately see a drug user and that's all we see. Mm-hmm. We don't see someone who was severely beaten or sexually abused mm-hmm. or some other trauma. And that's what brought them to the state that they're in to escape from, you know, when, when those are the support systems we need to build is mm-hmm. how do we address the underlying cause, not the current, current behavior. Absolutely. 
So um, I don't know what my question is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's complicated. And that's, I mean, a lot of what I've learned is just it's really complicated. And and I think acknowledging that is just a really important first step because I think we often want to have easy solutions to problems like this or we expect people to make drastic changes in their lives that um, without fully understanding what we're asking of mm-hmm. people and um just being able to acknowledge that it's complex. Is well, important. I got to imagine you got to have pretty thick skin to, you know, be a evangelist for free giving out needles <laughs> and drug use equipment in the community. Because I'm sure immediately that just that strikes, uh, you know, it triggers people to mm-hmm. react negatively against that mm-hmm. or what they think is positive in their mind. So it's hard to really change minds um, mm-hmm. quickly. Uh, I'm sure, you know, once people dig into to it and, and weigh everything, they they come around. But tell me about some of the things that you faced. I mean, I'm sure yeah. it hasn't been easy. No, it hasn't. I mean, it is sort of helpful to, you know, because I haven't always been a supporter or proponent of, of these practices. And so I, I remember the time when I reacted negatively to these ideas. And so I, um, you know, have um, an understanding and compassion when folks um, respond in that way. And um, I'm still sort of learning and trying to get better at, at, at kind of pushing to ask what's underneath those fears and um, um, how much of that is sort of what we've been told is true of drug use and drug users that isn't. Um, and I mean, sometimes you do have people who've had very negative personal experiences with substance use in their families or among their friends and um, trying to address and reframe that is is challenging and messy. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> some of my um, colleagues in faith and harm reduction, we're working on a webinar series and we've joked that we need one called um, I love harm reduction, but it friggin hurts sometimes, <laughs> except friggin is not the word that we yeah, always yeah. use. But, um, yeah. um, but that's part of, I mean, that's part of human relationships is that um, if we're, if we're dealing with, especially if we're dealing with trauma and with, just humans trying to make it in the world, like it's going to be painful and messy and mm-hmm. it's important to embrace that um, uh, in whatever ways we can. Well, I think we often forget. I think a lot of people who are of privilege forget that not all of us get the start that that others of us do get. In other words, you know, you're playing baseball and you, some of us get to start at third base and other people don't. Mm-hmm. And so – you know, we, we come up with what we think are easy solutions to other people's problems, but right. we don't understand. We haven't walked in their shoes. And, and I guess where I'm going with that is that um, we know that the human condition, the default is struggle. Mm-hmm. And some of us don't ever see that. And in fact, we've, you know, I was watching the the politician on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's great. There was a, um, and I may have said this, sorry, audience, if I keep <laughs> bringing this up, but um, one of the characters, she's leaving and, and her stepmother asks if she needs money. She goes, no, I'm happier when I don't have money. We have so much money that we make the hard things easy mm-hmm. and then we create our own problems just mm-hmm. to have something to give us yeah. meaning. And then we forget that there are those who have the real hard stuff is still hard for and I think that, yeah. that that's something that we need to keep in mind is that people are struggling out there. Um, they don't have community networks. They don't have these positive social connections that keep them from doing these harmful behaviors. So mm-hmm. um, we need to really uh, look at that 
problem differently and and maybe uh, figure out how do we how we can contribute. Now, let's just say I'm you just evangelize me for harm reduction, <laughs> and I see you know I've already kind of aware of the problem in our society with opioid use and it's alcohol and there's a lot of other things but you know i say i want to help how do i help um so some of the way some way to help is just to educate yourself and that's um there are uh, a lot of resources out there to just help people better understand um because i think you know if you come across someone who is struggling, the language that you use, the way that you engage with them can make a huge difference. You know, one of the things that um, my husband has said to me about, I think, I guess I was going out on a delivery for the syringe exchange and he reminded me, you know, this interaction with this person might be the only one in their week where someone's not trying to take advantage of them or not judging them or trying to get something out of them. And um, just realizing that that there are people here in our city that they're, you know, every interaction is a negative one, is a shaming one. And, um, you know, there there's some recommendations that harm reduction groups have around, you know, um, uh, language and how we use words. And some of those are pretty obvious, like, don't say junkie or crackhead. <laughs> but then there's some things like even referring to someone as an addict. Well, we may or may not know what their relationship with drugs is. And so, you know, I always just refer to people who use drugs and, yeah. and they can define what that relationship is like for them. Um, and there are a lot of other other little things like that. But I've found that for me, changing my language has changed my mindset in a lot of ways. Um, there are also, so in, here in Winston, Twin City Harm Reduction Collective is our local syringe exchange and they um, um, need volunteers and support uh, in different in different ways. And then um, the County and County Public Health Department is doing is working with them a lot. So um, there are a number of different ways to to get involved. But I think even just just learning and understanding so that you know if some uncle at the Thanksgiving table refers to your junky cousin, you can kind of say, well, is there a different way to think about that person and what kind of help might they need? Mm -hmm. um, I think that that can make a big difference in that connection and community piece. That's really important. Yeah, and I think. One of the ways I mean, I'm guilty of it too is is thinking that tough love is is the way to go about it, and obviously it's not. But um, you know, what what would be you know get up on the pulpit for a minute and and, and let you know sermon to mm -hmm. us about how we can love our you know brothers out there, brothers and sisters who are out on the street, and and mm -hmm. and you know it's so easy to overlook these people it's so even to step over them and to not see them mm -hmm. and you know i've talked with like joy was here last week and she's working with the holly house and, mm -hmm. and it's these you know giving these women a second chance women who would otherwise just not be seen and probably end right back up in prison and stuff i mean you know what would be your message to to, to us standing up there and where mm -hmm. you got a room full of people who are skeptics and against this harm reduction mm -hmm. and how, you know what do you tell us to to go out when we see these the untouchables let's call them i mean how do we how do we change our behavior towards them and what could we do to really make a difference yeah man that's a big question um well and it I, one thing that that question makes me think of is that there are kind of the people who are invisible because we, you know, don't make eye contact with the person who's panhandling because we don't have cash. But then there are also are ways in which I think a lot of people's, there are a lot of people who 
have jobs and are walking around in the grocery store and who don't appear to be um, in pain, but who are struggling, whether with addiction or with mental health or whatever it might be. And so in some ways, we render each other invisible um, on a lot of different levels. And I think it's um, I think the more that we sort of speak out for justice and, and for compassion, the more people know that we can be a safe person to come to. I mean, I can't tell you how many families I've heard from who have a grandson or a nephew or whoever that's struggling just because I've spoken up against, you know, stigma against people who use drugs. And um, and that signals to them that this is someone who can talk to because there's so many folks walking around isolated and ashamed and um, not realizing that there are so many resources in the community. They're just, they can just be hard to access because of those internal barriers as well as external ones. Um, but kind of the... Um, I, I've been thinking about this one um, Bible passage in Matthew 15 where, um, you know, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about, you know, some of these purity laws around what you should or shouldn't eat. And Jesus kind of – Jesus basically says it's not what you put into your body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you. Like what is what is it that you are um, – uh, expressing toward other people in terms of how you're speaking to them and how you're engaging with them. You know, we aren't made impure by the food that we eat or even, I would add, the drugs that we consume. We're made impure when we, ex- you know, act violently or in anger toward another person. And, um, you know, trying to remember that, I think a lot of times we, you know, might judge people who use drugs as, you know, using something that is harming their body and therefore that's morally wrong, but isn't our judgment of them more wrong Um based on based on that passage so um yeah there's a lot more there but to me harm reduction is love it's 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 you know i think we we often are pretty good at supporting somebody who let's say has struggled with drug use and decides to get sober um and that's a great choice that a lot of people make and um you know, people of faith are good at supporting people in that space, but not everybody is ready to make that choice or may ever want to make that choice. And in order for it to be a choice, you know, not choosing that has to be an option. And um, and that doesn't make somebody any less worthy of love. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to remember that. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think one of the things that we re- that I rarely hear talked about is just how, uh, you know, Alcohol, eventually, if you're an abuser, it's going to catch up with you. You're going to suffer some, you know, deterioration health and and health wise, both physically and mentally. And the same goes with uh, methamphetamine, probably cocaine as well. But the thing about opioids, you can be a long time, highly functional opioid user Mm -hmm. and it won't deteriorate your body. So Mm -hmm. I don't think people understand that there's probably a lot more of a more opioid users walking amongst us in daily life than we're aware of. So we need to. I think pay attention to our language Mm -hmm. and um, because it, I think it's easy to push people away by just loading words that are loaded with assumptions and, Mm -hmm. and and negative connotations and stigma and stuff like that. So that's a good message. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. But. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. We do have these sort of strange categories around drugs. And I think it's actually been interesting, what, you know, seeing pla- in places where marijuana is becoming legal, all of a sudden people are magically okay with using it as if the legality actually said something significant ab- about about the substance itself. And um, yeah, we do have assumptions about, you know, 
we have these illegal drugs that I, I don't know, you can kind of argue about like what is or isn't more harmful about them versus alcohol or whatever. But um, I was just looking at um, there's a bill before the North Carolina House around basically criminalizing substance use during pregnancy. Um, and I I would need to look at the language, but I think it's specifically around illicit drugs when, you know, the evidence we have is we know that smoking and drinking alcohol are harmful during pregnancy. We don't have as much conclusive evidence about the use of opioids or even, you know, there was the whole crack baby scare back mm-hmm. in the 80s. Um, and we don't really have that much evidence that those substances are harmful in the long term. Um, we do know that, you know, punishing that kind of use prevents people from getting prenatal care, which is harmful in the long term for, Mm -hmm. you know, and so um, we just, I think it's been a a journey for me of sort of questioning my assumptions about um, different kinds of drugs and, you know, looking at my, you know, we don't like to think of, um, if we don't use illicit drugs, we don't like to think of ourselves as using drugs, but I mean, I drink coffee every single day. I drink alcohol socially, you know, Um, and we have these just different categories that are kind of strange and that yeah, they're examining. Yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy in that when, you know, some crusty old legislator is <laughs> having this fourth scotch and talking about these stupid potheads, you know. I mean, yeah. come on, <laughs> you know. And, and if we look at the laws around, especially cannabis, and, mm-hmm. and those are being, you know, li- you know, liberalized pretty quickly now. But if mm-hmm. we look at the... Uh, you, you talked about injustice, uh, you know, just how racially motivated those laws were back yep. in the night and how how profit motive, uh, the profit motives behind getting hemp mm-hmm. um, classified as illegal. And they dumped in the whole racial scare of, of, of marijuana and all this yep. stuff. So um, we do need to make sure we look at those things and and. Um, maybe create an, a level playing field and then let the science determine what's really harmful. And I think we know the answer. I mean, mm-hmm. we have cigarettes and alcohol and we have places, probably 20 places within a stone's throw here where we could go do that legally and right. no one bats an eye. Sure. But, uh, yeah. So anyway, I don't know where I was going with that either. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot here. I, I mean, we, we this you know, society, is full of uh, unintended consequences. We think we're doing meaning well, like you said, this this uh, uh, drug use during pregnancy. I mean, you, you're going to drive people mm-hmm. away from prenatal care mm-hmm. by doing that instead of addressing, you know, giving them counseling and um, and, and trying to re- minimize harm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, yeah. um, let's see, where do we go from here? <laughs> um, are so you're you're uh, currently uh, ministering mm-hmm. um, uh, congregations where exactly? Yeah, yeah. so I kind of my uh, I have sort of like multiple part time jobs right now, which is what apparently what two master's degrees gets you. But uh, <laughs> so I'm still at, at with the Foundry House part time, and then I'm on staff at Green Street Methodist Church part time, and then I'm doing a little bit of work with the Faith and Harm Reduction Group to develop a toolkit for faith communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah doing a bunch of different things. Well, that's great. Um, now, we have um, a previous guest on the podcast, Keith Steyerwalt, mm-hmm. is um, heavily involved in, in uh, how do you say it, uh, clinical, pastoral, mm-hmm. 
what's yeah. the what's the right phraseology? Clinical pastoral edu- education. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and something and like you that. did some of that in pediatrics. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me about that experience. Yeah, I did an internship um, at Duke Hospital um, in clinical pastoral education, and I was on the pediatric wing, which. Um, Honestly, that was really hard. Um, this was a number of years ago, and I think it just was, um, it just was a really challenging experience. But I'm really grateful for it, and I, um, you know, have thought about trying something like that again. But um, it was, um, it was cool being on the peds unit because the the care teams work together in a, in a way that I think is different from other units, just because there's, you know, there's the patient, and then there's the parents, and then there's the, you know all the, it's a kind of a complex care situation but um but being the being a chaplain intern was it was a an interesting experience in um feeling kind of useless because you know I couldn't offer a diagnosis or treat anyone but also I was the one that had the time to just sit with somebody and listen to them or not say anything and um uh that was a that was a different kind of space to occupy that mm-hmm. felt holy to me so well i think uh, sometimes that's what a lot of people need is just human connection to say i see you i hear you thank you for just mm-hmm. being in the same space time yeah i had several experiences where just um you know there was some really complex situation and it it took a chaplain sitting with someone for a couple of hours to figure out what was really going on and that profoundly affected the care that they were receiving that um you know only because someone was able to really spend that time was that resolved. And mm-hmm. So um, I think that's an important well, piece. Well, you know, you say that, and it it just I had a image in my mind as as a intermediary of, with intermediary with healthcare, and that is, you know, I went to get a physical recently, and my blood pressure was a little elevated, and and I'd never heard this the phrase before, but white coat syndrome, hmm. and it was just being surrounded by doctors mm-hmm. is elevating mm-hmm. you know your stress cortisol level or whatever it is to you know so i'm wondering like how often that occurs when someone comes into a clinical setting and just is like you know whatever it is going on it's it's compounded a thousand fold and mm-hmm. so you, you know the the caregiver doesn't really know exactly but just having a calm presence just to de-escalate and then really sure. get to the bottom of it. That seems like a needed a needed thing. I'm sure that's the, the pay for that is not 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 uh, <laughs> supportive of of getting people to go into that field in <laughs> droves. But <laughs> you have to really be called to it. And there, I mean, there's some really phenomenal chaplains here at at, at Wake. Um, so yeah, but yeah. But I was just thinking role. as a, as a matter of you know. Routine care—that's what—that's yeah. what you could do. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I'm an idealist, so <laughs> I just say we snap my fingers and we do it. Um, what kinds of with the harm reduction? Um, some of these uh, efforts are—is there collaboration out in the region? I mean, I'm just thinking. I'm sure you know Winston Salem, being a, a fairly good sized city, uh, has. The, big city problems but i'm thinking about the you know we we often overlook the rural areas in northwest north carolina we have i know there's you know in the past there's been a real problem with uh methamphetamine and other things and and the opioid crisis has certainly hit those places too Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've had a lot of outreach beyond the, the the city limits yeah um personally not a ton but um so twin city harm reduction collective 
is, was the recipient of a grant from a program called HepConnect, which is, um, it's actually Gilead Pharmaceuticals working with Harm Reduction Coalition. And they um, gave grants to a, a number of, of harm reduction programs around the South, uh, around the Appalachians, um, specifically to do, well, a lot of it is around like hepatitis C testing and treatment, but also to expand harm reduction resources, particularly in rural areas. And so um, the grant that um, TCHRC received is both bolstering their um, their work here in Winston, but then also um, part of their ideas to reach out to surrounding counties that don't have as much resources around harm reduction and kind of help some of their um, public, whether public health departments or churches, whoever it is that's interested in the community, start um, exchanges and outreach programs. So mm-hmm. um, that's something that's getting a lot more attention, especially in the southeast. So we've it's the the rural areas in um, Appalachia and around here have been pretty hard hit. So Yeah, and I imagine the resistance just for the concept of it is even greater than it would be. Sure. And it's, I mean, it is kind of a mixed bag because you do run into resistance, but then you also run into a lot of desperation and people realizing that what we've been doing isn't working and mm-hmm. we need to try something else, even if it sounds kind of crazy. So um, there are, there definitely are some, um, some groups in rural areas that are doing some pretty um, incredible stuff. So Now you're talking um, at one of our Exploring Ethics mm-hmm. series. Yeah, is, have Thursday. you done that? It's on Thursday. On Thursday. Yeah. Okay. And, and you're going to be talking about? About substance use and harm reduction and, <laughs> and um, kind of the bioethics of that in a clinical setting. So. And you're currently in the bioethics program. I actually just finished. So I graduated in August. <laughs> awesome. But uh, yeah, I just did the MA in bioethics. And so how are you going to apply that? Yeah, I mean, I'm still kind of tweaking the, the presentation, but um, you know, there a couple components of it. Some is just kind of framing how we look at addiction. Um, you know, a, a lot of um, uh, medical professionals subscribe to the brain disease model of addiction, and I've, I've done a lot of reading around some of the, the limitations of that model, ways in which it can be helpful, ways in which it isn't. Um, but then also sort of introducing harm reduction is a lot of what I'll be doing at that. Um, and um, one of the things I didn't, so I wrote my thesis for the bioethics degree on substance use and harm reduction in conversation with disability studies and liberation theology. And so um, I ended up kind of putting harm reduction in conversation with the social model of disability, which basically the very Cliff's Notes version is um, saying that there are, you know, if a person has a disability, we often kind of locate that disability in the person's body. But um, the social model distinguishes between a physical impairment and then a disability, which is imposed on a person by society. So, you know, if a person is a wheelchair, that might, there's there's some physical biological reason that they can't walk, but if they can't access a building, um, that's not something that's wrong with their body. That's the building doesn't have a wheelchair ramp. So um, that to me has been a helpful model in thinking about, okay, when someone is, is using drugs, you know, there are, there are a lot of um, things that we assume are just natural consequences of drug use. And you mentioned sort of how privilege in- insulates us from, from different things. And, um, you know, if we really look at what are, the, what are the consequences that are just of the drug use versus what are consequences of poverty or of lack of re- resources or um, lack of access to harm reduction supplies, um, it's been a helpful tool for me to distinguish between, you know, these things that maybe our direct consequences of drug use versus what are the ways in which society is actually creating harm and disabling people who use drugs. So I'm going to get a little bit into that um, on Thursday. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that could that could go pretty deep there. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Now, switch gears a little bit in that, you know, in treatments. And I've heard, uh, I don't know if you know Mm -hmm. maps.org and some of the research they're doing with PTSD Mm -hmm. um, using psychoactives um, Mm -hmm. that have traditionally been outlawed in this country. Um, Are you, you know, tell me what you know about that and, and do you see hope for that? I mean, it seems like some people, one, session with MDMA or psilocybin or ayahuasca or DMT or Mm -hmm. all these things are just showing like, I mean, people are going, they're following these dark doors that are in their past and they're shining light on them to try Mm -hmm. to finally resolve some of these things. I know it sounds um, easy, but they're showing some promise with that stuff. Yeah, I just I just watched part of a documentary about some of that work. And it's really interesting. Uh, My husband knows a lot more about it than I do. Um, But I I do think it kind of speaks to uh, some of the resistance I hear to some of that is kind of like, well, that seems almost too easy. Like if we if somebody needs to work through trauma or something, then I don't know, it's like, we feel like it should be hard. Um, And and maybe for some people it is, but, you know, why would we deny someone a shortcut? You know, I, like EMDR is another, I'm not with psych, with drugs, but um, one of those treatments for trauma that can, for some people, seem to almost shortcut healing. And, you know, why wouldn't we let people have that? And um, it actually, some of what I got into in, in my uh, bioethics thesis was kind of how we conceive of medicine in general and, and that um, medicine is a is supposed to be this like bitter pill that we have to take and kind of like suck it up and, um, you know, get better and like grin and bear it through it. But, um, you know, why can't, why can't pleasure and, and positive experiences be a part of that process? And, um, you know, why does it have to be arduous? And so, Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's, it seems like there's a lot of promise coming out of, of some of those studies. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what, what comes of that because, um, you know, a lot of people are are really suffering from childhood trauma or um, PTSD. When and you know, and if you're in chaotic drug use, you're just you're often just being compounded in trauma every single day, and um, um, that can be really, really difficult to untangle mm-hmm. in some of the traditional models of therapy. So, yeah, well, I, I could see. I mean, you said the word shortcut, and I think that that's exactly what some of those tools of medicine. Mm-hmm. That that have been around for millennia um, can provide. And I don't think it's like I think we shouldn't associate it with pleasure because I think there's work that's done in those in those situations. I mean, I've heard yeah. I've heard first you know firsthand accounts of how you know had to go through some dark dark places to find right. yeah. and to finally uncover some things that that were to deal with now. Again, that I, I see privilege around, wrapped around that because someone sure. like me could could go off to Peru and do an ayahuasca, mm-hmm. you know, shaman experience and mm-hmm. unlock some things that may have been holding me back. But um, even if we had that available to someone off the street, say, "Hey, we're going to fix you," you know, we, you know, mm-hmm. go, you know, any door you open it, any dark passage you go through it, all that stuff, and then they come out like, "Eureka, I'm healed," mm-hmm. and then oh, you're back on the street because you're right. homeless, right? Yeah. You know, so <laughs> right, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of societal parts to this. But I, I think, you know, I'm hopeful because I, I've had a lot of people on this podcast and I talk to people um, just about every day who are providing or who are looking at community issues and, and coming up not with just 
throwing money at things and and doing things just to say they have, mm-hmm. you know, to make themselves feel good, but to actually, um, you know, unpack and pull apart all the components and trying to address them and, you know, in the best ways that don't cause unintended consequences right. yeah. and stuff. And I think that one of the, just the thought exercise of harm reduction kind of yeah. unlock some of that for some people because I, you know, I, I had a hard time when I first heard it. And then I was like, well, you know, there's, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, you minimize the damage being done. I mean, that's, sure. that's a start. <laughs> well, and like to go to your example of, you know, you know, give somebody this amazing treatment and then put them back on the street. Well, so housing is harm reduction. There are all kinds of things that, that are harm. You know, if you have somebody you know, we see people like coming into the exchange with abscesses and it's because they're using outdoors or in unsanitary places. And, um, it's like, if, you know, if they even just had like a clean, safe place where they were using, that might not be happening to mm-hmm. them. Um, and we find too, that the, the, the let, the more chaos people have in their lives, the less they're capable of making different choices because they're just in survival mode. Mm-hmm. And so the more we can remove some of those chaotic pieces, the more people actually, actually have real options to mm-hmm. to make change if they want to. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about, we have the annual STD update um, for the state um, at, at our location here, and it's broadcast statewide. Mm-hmm. So look at northwestahec.org mm-hmm. for STD update information. But, you know, some of the behaviors that can come out of this chaotic, you know, I'm just thinking that, you know, we always hear about the syphilis and gonorrhea and herpes and hepatitis and all the things that that, that a lot of, uh, I hate to say comorbidities or co, what's the word I'm looking for, um, afflictions mm-hmm. maybe, um, that come out of this chaotic mm-hmm. situation a lot of people find themselves in. Mm-hmm. And, and and again, we, we, we judge the initial behavior and we don't realize how that kind of uh, ampl- is amplified through all other aspects of public health and, right. and community um, community uh, health and yeah. those kind of things. So Yeah, I mean, and, you know, overlap in terms of chaotic drug use, sex work, rape, PTSD, mm-hmm. like all of that is um, really, really complicated and mm. very relevant to thinking about harm reduction and health care for, for people um, in those situations. So, yeah. Well, um, anything you want to plug? Um, you're, you're a singer-songwriter, too. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm work on that more in 2020, so we'll see what comes of that. <laughs> now, how much of, you know, have you, have you been writing? Do you, I mean, I'm sure you write, you know, you have a blog. and Yeah, you know. yeah, uh, I've been doing some. I haven't I haven't been blogging as much lately, but um, I, I do play with the Martha Bassett Band, and we have a monthly show in Elkin that um, folks should check out. That's really fun. Nice. Um, and, yeah, trying to trying to get a little more into writing. I was writing for school for so long that I have to get out of that headspace and um, find a different uh, way to do that. When you write, do you write to escape all this other stuff or does it, is it influenced and it's part of what? It's usually kind of like, I don't know. I have um, one of those brains that connect a lot of different things all at once. And I have, I sometimes have a hard time explaining it to other people. And so writing is often a a way for me to sort of process um, things that I'm thinking about that um, seem like they're not connected. It can help me kind of make those connections a little clearer so well um, we're looking forward to your album dropping in 2020 <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> soundcloud rapper something like that <laughs> <laughs> well 
Well, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on. This yeah. is last minute, and I'm I'm gonna have some of your colleagues from Cross Noir next awesome. week, and we're gonna talk about all the things that they're doing with the uh, I guess permaculture and yeah. some other things. Great. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to work. that. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much.